Our scripture this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except for my weaknesses. Though I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that one, no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for, your, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of God. Well, we're continuing our series, of course. And the series is, How Do We Follow Jesus? How Do We Be a Good Disciple? To be a disciple, of course, is to be a Christian. We're all disciples. And so as we continue this in our summer, as at a time where we probably want to say, hey, John, could you just give me a few gimmies so I could just take a break this summer, don't have to really worry about it, got things to do, want to take a vacation. And yet here I am continuing, just as the Bible does every time we read it, saying, even in vacation, even in summer, God is calling us into a depth. He's calling us to a specific and radical calling of following Jesus. So last week we looked in depth at what the cost is. And this week we're going to take, take a view of somebody who lived it out. The Apostle Paul to, to give a, a, just a basic survey, a basic bio, right, of Paul. A man who lived this idea of what it means to be powerful in weakness, who literally fought tooth and nail with people to get the upper hand so that he did declare that he has no hand. He fought for a voice so he could declare that he's comfortable having no voice. He so wanted people to understand what it meant to follow Jesus, how it's lived out. Because Paul saw this, Paul saw that worldly power is flammable. That worldly power is something we do not want to hold on to. It will blow up in our face. And he said the first thing you want to do with worldly power is give it away to Jesus. The first thing you want to do is say it's yours because I can't handle it. I can't touch it. Because worldly power, Paul knew, was an absolute illusion. That it didn't last. 
that though we per pursued filling the void, the gnawing in our stomachs, the hunger with things, with power, with status, with beauty, whatever we're taking in as a diet, he said, if it's not Jesus, if it's not the gospel, it will leave you hungry on your dying day. And you will find out the entire time you've been living, you were enslaved to it. I've quoted this a few times during this, this series um, from Tim Keller. I love this quote. This is actually from a book he wrote called Counterfeit Gods. Um, he, he read an interview with the pop icon singer Madonna, right? And Madonna says this. Um, she says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Sometimes artists, singers, poets, they say what we all know so clearly. And when we can see it from the eyes of the gospel, we can see it for what it is. That struggle is a real struggle, and it's not just Madonna's struggle. We share her struggle in our own unique ways. We are fighting for companionship. We are fighting just to not be lonely. We are fighting to be seen, to be heard. There's a fundamental pursuit, the, the gnawing of the human soul for power, for respect, for love. And Paul is contending that as followers of Jesus, we must commit to the truth that power is found in the most unlikely of places. It's actually found in weakness. So let's dive in. So we've got this text, right? And it starts kind of, we're starting with like a fragment, right? He says, I must go on boasting. Well, what's he been boasting about? What's he been going on here with Paul? Got to give you a little backstory on 2 Corinthians, right? There's, there's two books in Corinthians. And, um, okay, so here's what happened. Paul had written this first letter to the Corinthians. He had had, he had had Timothy take this letter. And what Timothy found when he wrote this first letter is he found that the Corinthian church was in turmoil, right? That they, they were kind of all over the place. And so Paul said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go visit and I'm going to live out and proclaim the gospel to you. I'm going to get you back on track. He wanted to go and he wanted to intervene with them because he cared about them so much. And so he gets there, and there is an open rebellion against him. People don't even want him there. In fact, he has to leave in humiliation. He just finally throws up his hands and says, fine, you don't, I guess you don't even want the gospel. Then he writes this really severe letter that we actually don't have. We don't have this letter. But we know that he wrote it because of the way he writes 2 Corinthians. We know that he has written them this letter in between where he utterly rebuked them where he just, he just told it to them how it was. And in God's grace, a huge swath of them repented. And so now what he's doing is he's writing, he's writing a second letter, and he's saying, I'm so glad that some of you have repented. He spends the first half of his letter saying, I'm so glad that that's happened. But then he writes the second half of the letter saying, 
to those who still think that I'm not the guy, that I'm not telling you the truth. I have a message for you. And he says, you people only seem to care about people who look the part. You guys seem to only care about what he calls super apostles. Probably people who had great charisma, great eloquence. People who probably boasted of all of the things that went right in their life as the Christian, as the answer that Jesus was living with them, right? Look at what he's done for me. Look at what I have. The prosperity gospel, health and wealth. And he, and, and he is coming up against this and he is saying, look, fine, two can play the boasting game. Two can do this. And he says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. What he's saying is, I'm going to go ahead and play the part of the super apostles just to get you to listen to me. And he says, and, and points, he also says, pretend I'm a fool. Just, just think I'm a total fool because that's what you already think I am. And then he goes on to explain what's foolish about what he's saying. So that's the tone, that's the, that's the sort of sarcastic quality. If anybody's read some Paul, right? You know that Paul is kind of a master of using sarcasm the right way, of barbing you. And he's, he's saying this in this first, first section. He's saying, he's saying, I have actually... I have every reason to be served, but I have poured out to you. I have every reason to have privilege, but I have given it all up for you. I have every reason to go do more important things, but I've stuck with you guys. So church, the question we have to ask ourselves, the central question in discipleship is, first, we must admit that we have much. First, we live in America. We have so much. What is it? Most people in the world live on a dollar a day. Like we have incredible wealth, even the poorest of us. So the central question we have to ask is, like Paul, we have been given much. Are we pouring it out? Are we giving it away? And so Paul starts by saying this. He goes, let me give you, I've already given you a bunch, and we'll go into what he's already said. He says, let me give you a little image here of where I'm at. Well, here, let's go back to what he already says. He says, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak to be, to be hit by those super apostles. We actually stood up to them. And he says, here's, here's what I am. Do you know what I am? He says, what everyone, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, he says, I'm speaking of a fool here. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better servant. He says, I'm talking like a madman. He literally writes, I'm talking like a madman. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes. Last one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I mean, this just goes off. This just gets crazy. No wonder he says he's a madman. He's like, let me tell you how bad it is, and then I'm just going to make it like worse and worse and worse. And night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger of rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, 
danger from false danger, 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 right? It says, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? He goes, I care about you guys. I care about the weak. I care about those who are made to fall. He's saying, give me some credence here. You're looking at all of these pretty people, but you're not looking at the guy who has suffered for you because they're more attractive, because they say more attractive things. He says, look at the person who is dying for you. He says, if I boast, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness, that God and Father, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. So Paul goes to extremes just to clear enough of a platform to be able to speak because he so wants to proclaim the true gospel because what the Corinthians have heard, what they have beaten him out of town with is a gospel that will take them to hell. And so Paul says, I will suffer to whatever extreme I have to because I so love you. I will even get sarcastic with you. I will even fight you down until you're actually listening to me and then we can talk. Don't we wish we had a friend like that? Don't we love it? After the fact, of course. When we have a friend who's willing to confront us and get us to grapple with the reality of the false gospel of the truth that we are living and breathing and actually acting. Because many of us may be saying one gospel and living another. We may be so totally convinced that the gospel we believe and say is the gospel we're living and we're so out of touch and we need someone else to push our face into it and say, this is you. Let me paint you a picture. That's you. That's what Paul's doing. And he says, he then goes on in this boasting, this extreme boasting. He circles back, right? He's gone through all of this suffering. And he says, I must go on. There's nothing to be gained by it. But I'm going to go on because I can sense that you probably still don't believe me. So let me tell you this. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. The word vision in Greek is an event of a transcendent character that impresses itself vividly on the mind. They call it a celestial sight. That's a wonderful term, a celestial sight. And then he says, and revelations, which means either to make known or to make fully known. So Paul has a experience that makes God known to him, a moment of divine presence, closeness, a vision. Because what he's talking about here is not some other guy. Paul uses all kinds of rhetorical vice, devices. And he's saying right here, I know a man in Christ. All he's saying is, he's talking about himself in the third person. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, he says. So Paul is about to proclaim this incredible vision and revelation that shows power. That shows a sort of access that shows something that should get the Corinthians to wake up and be like, well, those super apostles, they had some cool stories, but they didn't have this. You've actually had an experience with God. And he says, let me go back. Let me tell you about this experience I had. 
And he speaks incredibly highly of it. He gives this sense of a mountaintop experience. We, we kind of know what that phrase means, right? He says, I went to the third heaven. Now, in, in ancient times, when they talked about the heavens, usually they were talking about sort of the blue sky, the clouds, right? And the second heaven was sort of the stars. The third heaven was beyond the stars, which is where they believed that Yahweh, God Almighty, dwelled, right? I went to the third heaven. I went into the space where God is. Now, the ancients also thought a lot differently about space than we do. When we think about space, we, in modern times, have thought about space as a cold, empty space, right? We use the term space. They never used the term space. It wasn't just a, an expansive forever of nothing, filled by cold emptiness, the way humanity has begun to see it. But it is a, it is a place that is the emanation of God himself. And they actually believed that the brighter stars were the ones closer to God, that they shone more brightly, right? And so Paul is saying, I went beyond the brightest stars to the presence of God himself. He says, I was caught up in paradise. This word paradise is a, a Persian loan word. That means it's a, it's a word taken from Persia straight into Greek. And it means a walled garden. Barclay writes this, the commentator writes this about paradise. He says, when a Persian king wished to confer a very special honor on someone, specially dear to him, he made him a companion of the garden and gave him the, the right to rock, walk in the royal gardens with him in close companionship. In this experience, as never before and never again, Paul has been the companion of God. Well, that, doesn't that feel like something we've heard before? Paradise, the garden, walking in the cool of the day. Paul is saying, I had an experience like Adam with God. I was with him. So Paul is saying, look at this. If I can't say it enough, I have the pedigree. I have the privilege. I have the status. I am worth listening to. There is every reason for me to have the greatness you're looking for, but you have ignored me. There's every reason even for me, for you to see that I have spiritual greatness because you've ignored me. Actually, you don't care about those things. You're avoiding the cost. You like those super apostles because they have come to proclaim a gospel that is just much more palatable, easier to swallow. So he cuts to the quick. He says, you guys are looking at surface things, attractive things. And you're also listening to these people, these teachers, that have not really been forthright with you. That have not been fully human with you. We know he's saying this because in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, he says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So Paul is teeing up his argument, and now he's going to dive in. 
I say they gave you a false gospel, a false country, a false kingdom that they were leading to you. The only place to get there is in weakness. So he's explained this vision, this revelation of this man, which is his own self 14 years ago. And he said he heard things that cannot be told, which man cannot utter. And behalf of this man, I will not boast, but on my own behalf. I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Now, what is he saying? What does that mean? Sometimes Paul can be so confusing, right? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, the reason I use the third person is that man that went up to be near to God, that was pulled up into communion, was Christ in me. That was the spirit in me. That was Jesus in me. Galatians 2.20, he says, I am crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. He says, I can't boast in me, Paul. I'm a wreck. Right? I can only boast in the Jesus in me, Paul. In that man that went up 14 years ago. I can boast in him, but not in me. See, the other teachers were quick to take the credit. They were quick to say, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I did do that. Thanks. You know, thank you. And he's saying, I, I, didn't, I don't even do the great things. I can't even take credit for them. That's Jesus in me doing those things. In every moment, Paul is taking the chance to proclaim the gospel. In every great moment, he is saying, it's Jesus. And of course, we know that Jesus didn't proclaim a gospel that was less costly. Jesus was really clear about this. Matthew 6, 46. He says, for if you love those who love you, which would be a cheap cost to you, what reward do you have? Do you not even know the tax collectors do the same thing? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? Jesus proclaimed a cost. So we want to treat salvation we hear salvation is free for all who believe. So we want to treat salvation like a rummage at a garage sale. And we want to say, really, it's free? I can have that? Sure, I'll take it. What's in this day? Right? We want to take salvation and then just keep going along our hunt to fill the void. Yeah, of course I'll take salvation as long as I can keep rummaging through these other bins. See, we like to do salvation and all of the other things just added on. But what if salvation is a different kind of free? What if salvation is like this? Somebody is dying, left out in the wilderness. And suddenly somebody comes and picks them up, scoops them up and saves them. And the person asks, how could I ever repay you? And they say, it's free. Because you can't ever repay me. See, it's a different kind of free salvation. They still got it for free. But now they are forever indebted. But will they ever see it as an enslavement? Heavens no. They will see it as a huge blessing because they owe their entire life for that free salvation that saved them from the pit of despair. But we so belittle and make small of salvation that we say, great, I'm a Christian and that just kind of seals the deal so I can keep going on doing all this stuff. And I don't have to worry. I don't have to have anxiety about living forever. I don't have to have anxiety about death anymore because I'm a Christian. Right? Yes, 
That's true. But you were saved from death. So you actually do now have a new master. Jesus Christ himself. And Paul says that's the beginning of the key. That's the part of the weakness that begins to make this make sense. He says, okay, if you just have that, if you just see that, and you just see, I'm weak, I had to be saved. There's no power in that. You have to look to the person. Who did you flee to? Who picked you up and scooped you out? If you're ambushed and you are running from the enemy and suddenly a protector is standing there, whether he's got a big gun or a big stick or he's a strong man or a strong woman, whatever the protector is that's saving you, that you're running behind, right? What are they doing? They are powerful. He says, so you are weak. I, Paul, am weak, but I am hiding behind. I have a savior. I have a father. I have a protector who has great power. So the less of me there is, the more power there will be, the more defense there will be. The more I shrink myself and hide behind him, the bigger he can be. The more I point to this guy instead of me, the better defense I have. He says, so now, Paul gets, Paul gets so practical and so comprehensive with this stuff. I could just stop right there and you go, oh, that's a good word, John. It's a good word. But Paul goes, no, we got to go on. We haven't even gotten even close to all the way there yet. He says, now, let me talk about pain. Let me talk about what it feels like to have pain and how I deal and how I reckon with that. How do I deal with that weakness and how is that weakness powerful? He says, verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of this revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So the first thing, if we distill this down, the first thing he's saying is, I have some physical ailment or perhaps some mental hurdle, some temptation. Paul writes about the flesh both as the body and the sinful self. Could be either, right? I have something that try as I might, I can't shake it and it just comes out of the middle of nowhere and hammers me. I have that. He says, that is God keeping me from becoming too arrogant. He's keeping me humble. Whoa, what a claim. Now, Paul isn't seeking to explain away all pain in the universe. But as a wise person does, we don't have the answers for everything, but we have an understanding of how to get through things. We have an understanding of what things do. And Paul is saying there's a wisdom that I know. I don't pretend to be God and know why he allows all pain to happen, why the fall was allowed. I don't pretend to know all that. I know this, that my pain keeps me humble. He says, my pain knocks me out. I think we can relate to Paul's thorn. I think most of us have something, whether it's a physical ailment, that we don't ask for, and we still get it. We still deal with it. People, people commentators have surmised, what was it for Paul? Maybe it was poor eyesight. Maybe after all those visions and the scales falling off his eyes, that Paul's eyesight never fully recovered. He had to strain to see, and he would get painful migraines that would just put him in bed, maybe for days. You can imagine Paul, the most driven guy, right? This missionary who wants to just go everywhere he can for Jesus, stuck in bed, just in agony, 
and pain. Perhaps it's a, a mental impediment. I don't know if it was this way for Paul, but I think for us we can relate to different kinds of thorns, stricken with just aggravating depression, unexplainable anxiety, stricken with these thorns. Spurge, Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher in London, said this. He says, Now I believe that the apostle did not tell us what his particular affection was, that we may everyone feel that he had sympathy with us, that we may everyone believe that ours is no new grief. It was a trial mainly of the body. And he says, as I said earlier, from that, somebody used the word flesh rather than body. He says this, though, he says, be thankful for the thorns and thistles which keep you from being in love with this world, from being an idolater, he says. So let's keep mining the depths of just, just for a second here. What does this thorn mean? How do, we, how do we actually deal with this? Well, first of all, we know that this is no new concept. In Job chapter 2, verse 6, as God is talking to the devil, having a meeting, right? He said, behold, about Job, he said, behold, Job is in your hand, only spare his life. So when Paul says, I have been given a thorn, I believe he's saying, I have been given pain from God. I believe Paul's saying that. He's saying, it came to me, it's been given to me. And a messenger from Satan has come to harass me. So whether it's been given directly from the hand of God or allowed by God as in Job, he's being harassed just as Job was harassed, right? You can take everything, just don't spare his life. John Piper writes this when talking about this. He says, this, this is a picture of sin's evil. He says, we can shed some light on God's purpose in this subjection of creation, this putting sin and putting, putting pain in creation, if we ask this, why would God's judgment fall on physical creation when the sin was an act of the human heart? Why should it fall on physical creation if it's our fault? It says, my answer is that the physical miseries of the creation are a visible and deeply felt witness to the moral ugliness and outrage of sin. So let me explain this. He says, for most of us, the sins of our hearts our preferences for God's gifts over God himself, that's how he's defining sin, do not cause great agony inside of us. We do not feel the outrage of the universe. We don't feel that the beautiful creator and sustainer of the world is disregarded and dishonored. But just let our bodies even be touched by pain and we are full of indignation that this is happening. How could this happen to me? Why am I suffering? I believe in Jesus. In other words, he says, God subjected the physical world, everything around us, including our bodies, to corruption to show us the outrage of sin at one point where we really feel it. All physical pain and sorrow should scream at us, this is how horrible sin is. The migraine, this is just a fraction of how horrible sin is. The depression, this is just a glimmer of how dark hell is. This is how serious our moral condition is before God. This is why the redemption of the world was not cheap, but cost the infinite price of the Son of God dying for sinners. So Paul is saying, I don't separate the two. 
the physical ailment reminds me of the spiritual realm. It keeps me humble because it makes me remember that the sins of my soul are actually far worse than the pains of my body. Wow. There was a, a blind theologian named John Hull. I don't know why I love British people so much. Another British theologian. Um, I saw this film called Notes on Blindness that, that covered this guy's life. Incredible film. They had real life actors, but they had used recorded tape, um, audio tape from his life. He had tons of audio recordings that he had journaled his descent into blindness in midlife. And they used and had the actors directly lip sync him. So it appeared as if the actors were talking in his voice. So it was this weird sort of documentary narrative. So eye-opening, so poignant for somebody who can see what it feels like to be blind. And I thought of him as I was thinking of this thorn, of thinking about the different things that each of us deal with that nobody else will really understand our pain. Nobody else will really understand our perspective. <clears throat> John Hull, he writes this. He says, he was writing for a, um, a journal, and he said... <clears throat> Looks like the images may not have come through on that. Um, he is writing for a journal and he talks about the fact that uh, when he was descending into this blind state, he noticed that in the gospel, specifically in the gospel of John, that there's all of these correlations made between lightness and darkness. That blindness is sort of a pejorative word for the spiritually blind, people who can't see that Jesus heals people from blindness, that he's releasing them out of blindness. And he got kind of frustrated. Am I, am I really not in God's good graces? Is this some sin that has to be cured from me? He was, he was really dealing with this thorn as it was approaching, as his kids were, were people he couldn't even see. He could just hear their voices. They were so far away from him. And he's just struggling with this, searching in the scriptures for this. How can this be? And then he gets to a point where he begins to see what Jesus was actually doing. And he sees in Jesus' final days, actually, he's blinded. A blindfold is put over him as he's put on the cross. Jesus understands what I go through. Suddenly, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a spiritual darkness. And he says, suddenly I realized that Jesus was walking with me. And he had a clever way of saying this. He said, and as I was walking along, lightly touching his elbow to follow him, I had the companionship of Jesus once more. Jesus who had abandoned him in his thorn, who had it abandoned him when he thought that he had descended into the darkness and Jesus was not there. In fact, Jesus maybe was even judging him. He said the Gospels were written from sighted perspectives from people who didn't understand this, and it was so abundant to me. And he, I think he began to doubt, right? How could a sighted person understand the blind experience? And it wasn't until he see that Jesus, too, walked in weakness with him, that he felt that companionship that brought a sense of power, a sense of being respected and loved, a sense of being able to go on. I think these moments are moments where we find that um, 
that these mountaintop experiences sort of carve a channel in life. They carve a channel. We have these huge experiences, and suddenly there's sort of a cavern carved out with them. Uh, many years ago, I was able to go to Petra in Jordan, which is this incredible uh, stone-faced castle that carved into the stone. Right? It's in the last scene, one of the last scenes of Indiana Jones' Last Crusade. Right? They're like walking up to this thing. It's this amazing, it seems like surreal. Um, this culture had carved into the face of the side of a mountain. But to get there, you have to walk through this narrow canyon. And the canyon's like, unlike any other I've seen, it's, you walk through it, and as you look to the sky, there's just a sliver of sky. The wind has come through the sandstone and carved out this hole. Or I think of the Columbia Gorge, where years and years and millennia of glaciers have carved this huge pathway. And you look up to the sides of the gorge and you can't help but think of the power. You can't help but think of what did that. Our experiences of nearness and power are important, just as Paul's vision is important. Those moments where we have where we go, God was really with me then are times where we can say, through that memory, we can say, I have faith, because I have seen either through those chasms, I have seen the, the breadth and the height of him, the power of him, or through the experiences of other people in the Bible, or other Christians in history. David Wolpe is a, a rabbi in LA. I heard a great podcast with him. He was talking about our current state of suffering, right? And if there's somebody who maybe has the corner on suffering, it would be Jewish people, right? They, they, they understand that. And he says, he says I, I've been thinking a lot about suffering. I've been speaking a lot about suffering. I've been speaking about what we're going into right now. And this was a secular interview, interviewing this guy. And he says, how do we deal with the current reality, with the suffering that we've been jumped into, we've been launched into? He says this, he says, Suffering in some ways is impossible to understand. He says, first of all, we have to realize that life is inherently unfair. Nobody promised that it would be fair. He says, but our problem is that we lose faith. He says, faith is not about trusting God to do stuff that I can do. It's about trusting God to do the things I can't do, that no human being can do. And he talked about Moses in the Red Sea. Moses comes up to the sea, right? And all of the people of Israel are with him. And he's crying out to God. And God says, why are you crying out to me? Move forward. I mean, this huge sea is in front of him. Move forward. Of course, we all know what happens. He says, the problem that we are facing right now, most of us, when we deal with suffering of any scale, especially suffering right now, is that... This is a momentary despair, but we make it into a permanent despair. He says, I don't believe that necessarily you're sinning in a momentary despair of the anguish of saying, I'm overwhelmed. He's saying, but the sin is turning away from God's power to take care of it into a permanent state of despairing where you say, see this pain, the suffering is proof that there is no meaning. It's proof that there is no God. This pain that I have is proof that I'll never make it, that I can never do it, that God is not with me. He says, that's where we go astray. That's where we lose it. Because Paul says three times, verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
So, in some ways, we ought to see this, this pain, we ought to see this time of suffering as training camp. We should repurpose coronavirus. We should repurpose this time of quarantine. We should even repurpose all of this turmoil and struggle as a time where we are being trained to critically think, to critically act, and we are trained in the act of getting up again, the repetition, the ups and downs, the over and over agains, where we have a momentary despair, we turn to God. He carries us, we have a momentary despair, we turn to God. It's this kind of training, right? And most of us know this really well, we're actually really good at it. Probably a bunch of us in the room grew up on video games, right? I was watching Amelia play this game the other day, and the game is just like over and over and over again. It's like a puzzle, and she gets halfway through and then dies. Gets halfway through and dies. A little further, each time a little further, a little further. She's played it for hours and hours and hours. And now she can get to the end because she's trained. Because she's not let the, the one time of failing just have her throw up the whole thing and give up. I think Paul's saying, know your enemy, expect that he will harass you. But he's saying, all of this, all of this action, all of this training, all of this power, you have to realize you are training to give yourself up. You're not training to become stronger and better and more Instagram worthy. You're not training to hide the bad the the sides of you you don't like and show the good sides. You're not gaming the system. He says, in all of this, for the sake of Christ, verse 10, then I am content with weakness. For the sake of Christ. He's not, Paul's not the kind of guy to be content with being weak. Paul's not the kind of guy that's content to be insulted. In fact, he's been insulted by these Corinthians and he's come back at them. He said, you didn't, you didn't insult me, you insulted the Christ in me. So I'm coming back with bigger weapons because you don't insult the Christ in me. But his biggest, bigger weapons are what? His bigger weapons are more suffering, enduring more hardship, getting jeered at more. Because Paul says, one, there is a power that is not ours that truly conquers weakness. And that's Jesus. He gives the thorns. Our weakness gives room for that power. If we're strong up front, who's going to protect us? We've got to get behind. And he says, through this, through that power, Christ in you enters into you. So that in the world, we are so searching and delivering out to others, not by our power, but by our weakness, so that the power through us can be the spirit in us. That's how power is made perfect in weakness. The image of success that Paul gives isn't powerful, self-serving, or alienating. The fulfillment he gives isn't a sense of deep worldly comfort, inner peace. I know exactly what's going to happen next month with my rent. He's not even saying that. It's not the ability that you have and the skills you have. It's the tenacity to stay weak so that Christ may be great in every aspect of your life and to not be afraid to talk about it to other people. When they ask you out of curiosity why you do the crazy foolish things you do, you say like Paul, humor me for a second. Let me sound like a total idiot. This is why I do it. Let's pray. God, 
you give us hard things to grapple with. This passage in particular, there's so much going on, God. But I pray that, like Paul, we could be people who live this out, who have the courage to have the process be over the product, have the patience to believe in the outcomes that Jesus promises he will give. That grab on to the great joys in the mountaintop moments, not as the goal, not as the point, not as the, that show us that we're doing it all right, but as ways that we can remember the greatness of God as we travel through the dark tunnels and caverns. God, we thank you that your presence is with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.